0: God's word says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers were gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed? Shaken by the wind? What did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you out see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another. We played the flute, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." Some friends of mine were very excited to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. They had carefully planned for this special weekend, and they had rented a cabin in this charming southern hills of Ohio. They were looking forward to getting away from all the rush of the city and enjoying the lack of sounds and the beautiful sights. Yet when they drove up to the cabin, they began to wonder if they had the long wrong location. It looked the same as the pictures, but a little bit smaller. And then when they entered in, they were even more shocked and a little discouraged. Because, yes, everything looked like the pictures, but it seemed like someone had gotten in the very farthest corner of the room with the widest angle lens they could get. And it was like the pictures, but not like it. And then to make things worse, the beautiful view they had expected to see was blocked by the trees right next to the windows. And the room had a distinct odor that made the whole weekend very unpleasant. You know, they had great expectations of what was going to happen, and yet they were sorely disappointed because what they expected did not turn into reality. And this can happen the other way. Maybe you go into this restaurant and you kind of look, at it's kind of a hole in the wall, and I don't know if this food's going to be any good. And then all of a sudden, it's exceptional. Your low expectations allowed you to appreciate it even more. And our expectations of something often shape the way we view it for good or ill. And that's not just limited to our food and our lodging, but even in our spiritual life. What you expect that the Lord is going to give you and how he is going to act affects how you relate to him. We're going to see that this morning because there's going to be three interactions that Jesus has in relation to John the Baptist. And the first, John had certain expectations of what the Messiah would be like, but they're unfulfilled. Then we're going to see that people had certain expectations of what John was like, and those were not always right. And then Jesus is going to show that many of their day, the religious leaders specifically, were like brats. They had certain expectations, and since they wouldn't be met, they were just going to be grumpy. And so you may follow along. If you have a bulletin, you can see that outline on the back. First, we're going to look at doubts about Jesus in verses 18 through 23. Then in verses 24 through 30, there's someone even greater than John, and then lastly, rejected by the brats in 31 to 35 but first there's these doubts about jesus and you can look in your bible or if you remember from last week we saw that in chapter 7 first jesus healed a man even though he wasn't there his power could be done used over distance second we saw that jesus brought a dead man back to life and the reports were going all throughout and the reports even come to john the baptist well now why did the report have to come to john the baptist rather than him going himself well it's because earlier in luke luke chapter 3 we are told that he was put in prison he was put in prison because he was preaching the message of repentance and he preached the message of repentance to king herod and said you should not have stolen your brother's wife and herod didn't really appreciate this so he put john in prison And so John, hearing of all this, sends two of his disciples. Now, two is important, because in their culture, you needed at least two witnesses to verify the truthfulness of something. And they're to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is coming, or should we look for another? And that verse I noted last week is kind of the hinge of which chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 3 turn. This whole section, Luke is showing us that Jesus is the one who was to come. And yet Luke tells of John's question. And this question has bothered many people. How can John the Baptist have this question? Isn't this John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Isn't this John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, and when he did, the Spirit of God came down like a dove upon him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased? Yes, it's the same John the Baptist. There's not another one so how can he have doubts that jesus is the one well john has doubts because john is a human just like us we have expectations god is going to act like this and he doesn't always act the way we think he should and it raises doubts well what is causing john to have doubts we'll flip back in luke to luke chapter 4 verse 18 There, Jesus goes into the temple, sorry, not the temple, the synagogue in Nazareth. And as was their custom, he was given the scroll. And he turned in the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61. And if you look at Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So John is wondering if Jesus is the one who had just said, came to proclaim liberty to the captives, um, why am I sitting in a prison cell? That doesn't seem to make sense. Not only that, but we're going to see in a few verses back in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus is going to say that John is the one prophesied in Malachi 3 that we read earlier, the one who is to come. But right after that in Malachi 3, 2, it tells of the one who's coming because of the proclamation of John. And it says of that man, of Jesus, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears. For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. So John is proclaiming coming judgment. And John's been faithful to proclaim that message. He even said the axe is laid at the tree. Warning of judgment. And so he's going around telling people, even Herod. And yet Herod's not being judged. John is. John was judged and put in prison. Well, what's going on, John is wondering? Well, the problem is not that Jesus failed to do what Malachi said, but that he came first to defeat sin and offer hope of restoration to all who would turn to him. And so... John didn't understand the twofold way that Jesus was going to unwrap his plan. And so John here is sitting in prison, though. He has his doubts, and so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus who he really was. And these are pretty faithful disciples, because it's word for word what he said. But before he answers them, Luke tells that in that hour, Jesus did many things. Cast out demons, healed many, even caused the blind to have sight. And then you can imagine... John's disciples kind of sheepishly coming up. Well, hey, you ask him. No, 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 you ask him. Okay. Oh, that's two out of three. Okay, you gotta ask. Well, uh, John, they even say that, John the Baptist wanted us to ask you, are you the one who's to come? We don't have these questions. This is we're asking for John. Or is there another one? Now, notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't respond with anger and rebuke, he doesn't say. Well, how dare he ask a question like that? I showed John who I was. He doesn't say, well, just believe. No, he says, just tell him of the things you've seen and heard. You know, Jesus, he knows us. He knows, as it says in Psalm 103, our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. You know, all questions are not always viewed as rebellion, as rejection of him. Yes, at times he does rebuke his disciples, But I think in general, when we have honest and real doubts, he is sympathetic as a father is with his children, as Psalm 103 tells us. And he he basically says, look, I'll give you reasons to believe. Just tell them what you saw and heard. Jesus was not doing these actions in secret and then going around saying, we all should believe what no one's really heard that I've done or seen. No, he's saying, look, I did this in front of crowds. Multitudes can attest to the reality of this. Just tell them what you saw and heard. You're a witness of what I've done. And this is really what often is done in the New Testament. Even First John, he writes at the beginning of his letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. You know, the New Testament is not about what they wanted to believe. It's what they saw and touched and heard and knew was true. And specifically, Jesus tells them to tell John that six things have happened. The blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf here, dead are raised, and the poor are preached the good news. You know, Jesus' words here, they're not only depicting what really did happen, he is also alluding to Old Testament prophecies. And we noted from Luke 4, Isaiah 61, and you probably heard some parallels there. He's also alluding to Isaiah 29, 18, and 35, 5. See, John the Baptist is a unique figure. He's a bridge. On this side is the Old Covenant and the Old Testament promises. But in there, they promised a new age to come on this side. And John is standing in the middle, proclaiming the old age was good, but there's one who's going to come, and the new age will be ushered in. And when that age comes, well, Jesus says, well, remember all the things that it said would happen. The deaf would hear, the blind would see, and all the things that Jesus said, that's going to happen. And so basically he's saying, look, John, just look at the signs. You've probably had this happen. You're at your home, you're watching a movie, the TV's on, the lights are out, you're all on the couch, and someone walks in and they go, hey, are you watching a movie? And you're kind of like, well, um... The lights are out. We're on the couch. We're staring at the screen. Just look at the evidence array. Of course we're watching a movie. Everything is pointing to that. And John is saying, Well, Jesus, are you the one who's to come? And Jesus kind of like, Well, uh, the blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. Good news is preached by me. Well, yes. Yes, I'm the one who's to come. Connect the dots. All the signs point that I am the one who is to come. I am He. But then Jesus says something very interesting. Verse 23, he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word offended is the idea of causing someone to sin or being a stumbling block to someone. Now, Jesus may not be what John had thought he would be or what others thought he would be, but they, he needs, he's saying, don't stumble over me because I don't fit your expectations. John thought Jesus was only going to be a Messiah coming to judge. Don't stumble over me because you misunderstood or your expectations are wrong. Many of the Jews thought the Messiah was going to come on a horse with a sword. Don't stumble over me because I'm not a military ruler like you thought. See that I am the fulfillment of those promises. And Jesus here is actually again alluding to Old Testament words. This is from Isaiah 8, 14-15 very famous words where he's talking about Emmanuel, God with us, and he'll come. And at the end of that, he says, He will be a rock over which you'll either build your life or you'll stumble. stumble." Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says, you can come to Jesus as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Or they could not believe, and then Jesus would be the stone that the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone. And so Jesus is either a stone on which you build your life or he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so Jesus is a pivotal point in which your life has to hinge. Are you going to stumble over him like you might a rock because he doesn't meet all your expectations of what he should be like? Or are you going to build your life upon him? And you know, I think this passage is raising an interesting question. And that is, what should we do with our doubts? And I put it that way because if we're honest, we all have doubts and questions. You know, sadly, some people will take the words of Jesus and say, well, you must have faith like a child and say, well, we, we don't need to wrestle with those things. Just, just believe. You know, I don't think that's what we're called to have. We're not called to have childish, unrational faith. The other extreme is this kind of, fake piety that says you know if you're really spiritual you just admit you don't know anything you're just agnostic about everything and that's really humble just saying well we don't really know we don't really know no it's not between not diving into the deep questions and it's not between saying we can never know jesus is saying that look doubts and questions are not necessarily bad but eventually you have to make a choice You can't stay in the middle on the fence. He is either Messiah, Savior, and Lord, or He's not at all. We can't remain in a state of doubt forever. However, that doesn't mean that as believers we won't have questions and struggles. We're going to see in a minute that John, he's not a reed. He's not someone who's tossed in the wind. Every popularity poll isn't throwing him off. He's not carried away by every wind of doctrine. And yet even John as he sits in his prison cell, begins to wonder, is Jesus really who he says he is? And you might think the same thing. If God is real, why is there so much pain and suffering? If God's in control, then why is my family such a wreck? If God is loving, why did that person I know, that young person, die? Or why am I continually dealing with health issues? If Jesus is real and I've been saved, then why do I keep dealing with all the sin in my life that seems to control me. And this can often be worse when the trial we're encountering is due to the fact that we're choosing to be faithful to God. You know, you might have lost friends or health or wealth due to faithfulness to Jesus. And now you're wondering, well, is it really all true? His love maybe led you to adopt or talk to a coworker, or care for parents or give money to those in need. And now... It seems life is actually worse because you obeyed than if you had chosen not to obey. And you're like John going, is he really who he says he is? Now thinking about this, it's good to realize you're not alone. Your doubts and questions are not something, that's what the devil wants to do. He wants you to say, oh, I'm horrible. I can't tell anyone about these doubts. They'll wonder about me. You know, the Bible, one of the many reasons it's a beautiful book it's because it's honest. It doesn't present this fairy tale world that, well, you're going to believe, and then you're going to be happy all the day. You know, John, who we're going to see is the greatest of the Old Covenant, is having doubts. Throughout the Psalms, the Old Testament, New Testament even, there's the question, how long, O Lord? People with doubts. We began the service reading Psalm 73. God put in his word of a man who had doubts. And along with the Bible being honest about believers' doubts, it also shows that Jesus will answer our doubts. Now, not necessarily in the time we want, or in the manner we want, and yet he's given us evidence for believing. Remember, he didn't just say to John's disciples, well, I already talked to John, he just needs to believe what I said. No, he says, look at the evidence. There's reasons to believe. You know, God didn't try and get Psalm 73 out of the canon. Oh, we can't let people know that there's doubts. He even put in Psalm 88, which doesn't end in a word of hope at all. There's real doubts and questions (coughs) that we have. But notice what John does. He doesn't hide his doubts. He doesn't suppress them. He brings them to the light. Because he brings his doubts directly to Jesus. He brings them to the light of life. And that's what we should do when we have our doubts we should be honest about those with one another. Bring them to God and bring them to God's people. I noted earlier at the beginning of the service, Asaph in Psalm 73 was be able to turn and have hope and faith again when he was worshiping with God's people. He didn't go, you know what, I've got to work this out privately and then if I get this, okay, then I'll go back and I'll worship. He said, no, the place where I'm brought back to restoration is with God's people and even personally with God. Be honest with Him. Share your doubts, your questions. He already knows you have them. He's not going to be like, What? I didn't know you thought that. Be honest and real with your doubts before Him. But in this, we may realize that as we bring our doubts to God, what He does is He reorients our expectations. That's what happened with John. John was saying, Well, look, God, if this is who you are, then you have to act this way. And God may do to us, well, you thought this is the way I had to act, but as you talk to other believers, as you're reminded of God's word, as you pray to him, he goes, the problem isn't me, it's your expectations of me. You know, God has not promised a growing church. God has not guaranteed that your children will love him. God has not promised that if you follow him, then your life is going to go better. In fact, Sometimes the trials come because you are being faithful to him. And it may be that he is showing his love and care by giving you those trials. And so in this first section, we're seeing that the doubts of John are revealing the true nature of Jesus. He is the one who is to come. And thus, our doubts can come to faith. But now, John is going to use, Jesus is going to use John, rather. To reveal the greatness of the new age that Jesus is ushering in. That's the second section in verses 24 through 30. Even greater than John. Because John's disciples now leave. They go back to John the Baptist. And Jesus takes this opportunity to turn to the crowd and ask them. Well, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? Did you go out to see a reed? An a?" Of course, they're going to answer no. We didn't go out to see any ordinary plant getting blown by the wind. That's not why you go out to the wilderness. Okay, well, did you go out to see someone dressed in really nice clothes? And they all would have said, well, no. John didn't dress in nice clothes, and you would never go to the wilderness. You know, you would go to a king's palace, or you might go to a fancy store in the mall. You don't go to the wilderness to see fancy clothes. So they says, well, what did you go out to see? A prophet, and the answer is clearly yes. But then Jesus says something else, but more than a prophet. And he quotes Malachi 3.1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who prepare your way before you. John came as a prophet, but also as a forerunner, a trumpeter, declaring that Jesus is the coming one who is bringing in the new age. Now, could there be a more important role than to be the trumpeter for the king of all the universe, the creator of all things, to be able to say he has come in the flesh, there could be no greater role. And yet notice what Jesus says, because Jesus even says it. yeah, verse 28, there's no one greater who could be born of women, the son of a woman. That's, this is the greatest But then he wants to grab their attention. So he says, I say to you, well, he was already talking to them. So he says that, say, look, but really pay attention because though John was the greatest born of women, this new age that I'm ushering in, even the smallest, the most significant is going to be greater than John was. Now, the point here is not that Jesus is putting John down. That's not the point at all. Rather, he's making a contrast between what happened before him and now what things will be like and the blessings that come after him in his kingdom. You know, think of some of the things that John did not get to experience because he was the bridge figure who died before Christ. He didn't get to fully understand the love of Christ that would go all the way to the cross. He didn't get to have the hope of the resurrection. He did not get to have the indwelling of the Spirit living after pentecost and so he's not putting john down at all he's saying no compared to john this is so much better You know, there's something interesting in us humans that we always like to think about who's the best you know we don't limit this just to sports we have competitions on who can be the best baker or who can be the best musician or who can be the best artist and jesus is saying look you could stack up all people of all time in any category sports combat art philosophy And at the very top of all of those people is John the Baptist. However, Jesus says, if you know the radical new nature of my kingdom, the very lowest person in that kingdom, they trump John. John would be worse than all of them because of all the wonderful things that I bring, Jesus is saying. You know, you may look around and you may think, I'm a nobody. You look at the metrics and measurement that our world says of someone who's important and valuable, and by those standards, you don't measure up to much. But Jesus says even if by the world standards you're number one, that would mean nothing to you, being the very lowest person in his kingdom. Your value, he says, is found that you're the son and daughters of the King of Kings. You're in his kingdom. And that should cause us to question, what kingdom am I living for? Because if you're living for your own kingdom now, you may have some wonderful things. And yet those are nothing in comparison to being in the kingdom of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, what kingdom are we living for? Well, Luke then makes a slight transition because he makes a parenthetical remark about how those who had believed John the Baptist and his message of repentance and thus been baptized, they agree, this is great. We, what Jesus is declaring is just. God is just. But those who rejected John the Baptist, who wouldn't repent, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the lawyers, not legal lawyers, but religious lawyers, they reject this. And then that leads to the third section. Because as Jesus is thinking about this, he's going to say that the religious leaders reject him because they're like little brats who insist that they get their own way. And so this is our last section, rejected by the brats. And so Jesus says in verse 31, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? And now here the context is he's clearly saying this generation is the religious leaders and others like them. And to explain, he gives this parable. There's two groups of Children. They're in a marketplace. And one group, the first group, they are gonna be the ones who are the bratty, unhappy children. And they represent the religious leaders. The other group of children is Jesus and John the Baptist, the second group. And this first group they're unhappy. So the second group goes, Hey, let's celebrate, let's play some music like a wedding, let's dance, and let's have fun. And they go, No, we don't want to do that. We're 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 miserable. We don't want to do that. so they go, okay, you're miserable. We get that. Let's play somber music. Let's play dirges like we're at a funeral. And they go, eh, we don't want to do that either. We don't want that. We, we, we don't want what you're doing. Nothing is going to satisfy them. Now, if you've ever been around children, you know what's going on here. Or we've all been children. And as sadly as adults, we can act like children. So we know what's going on here. You're in a grumpy mood. And so your friends, your family, they come to go, hey, you want to go out to eat? We'll go to any restaurant you want. Hey, what movie do you want to watch? Hey, wait, what game do you want to play? I don't want to do anything. Leave me alone. <laughs> and so everyone goes, your family, okay, we'll leave them alone. Why is no one playing with me? <laughs> and you're going, well, what do you want? You say you're unhappy, you need something to cheer you up, and we try and do that, and you get mad at us. You say, leave me alone. So we leave you alone, and what do you do then? Why does no one want to play with me? Nothing is going to make you happy. It's like a bratty child. And sadly, we can often be like this. And Jesus is saying, that is exactly what the religious leaders are like. Because, you know, he flips it. He gives the second one. John the Baptist was like the people playing the dirge. He came out in a somber manner, a somber message. Repent. He was like the funeral. And yet, what do they do? Oh, no, no, no. Someone who wouldn't go to parties. Someone who's out in the wilderness, that person's crazy. They're demonic. We're not going to listen to that. So Jesus goes, okay, well, I'll do the opposite approach. I'm going to go to weddings. I'm going to make wine for weddings. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to go to parties. And they go, oh, no, no, no. We we wouldn't want to believe that message. That person, they're, they're a partier and they're a drunkard and they hang out with tax collectors. No, no, we can't believe that. And basically they're saying, we don't want to believe your message and so Jesus is showing that the religious leaders are just like these marketplace brats. They don't want to believe the message. And so they're going to find any excuse they can to not believe it. You know, it's their way or the highway. They'll take their ball and go home if Jesus and John don't play by their religious rules. Now, this is clear because Jesus and John had the same message. Jesus and John both accepted the same type of people. They both preach repentance. They both were saying all types of people, even who our society thinks the worst, tax collectors and sinners, yes, they can repent. And yet it seems throughout the Gospels, the religious leaders don't like this message. It's the same message by John and Jesus, different manners, but they don't like it because to believe this message means you have to humble yourself. It means you have to repent. It means that you have to say, It's not about me, because I need mercy. It's not how good I've been. That's what the religious leaders thought. They proudly thought it's all about how good we've been. And they thought, we want God's justice. We don't want His mercy. We don't deserve that mercy. We deserve justice, because we've been good people. But not only that, but in their view, some people were beyond God's mercy. People like tax collectors. All they deserve is punishment. And it's scandalous. It's ridiculous that Jesus and John would say anybody like tax collectors could be saved. That's a horrible message. We won't believe that. And thus, whether it's fasting and being austere due to sin, or whether it's rejoicing and partying because you've been forgiven of sin, neither one of those will work for them. They don't like Jesus' religious rules of the game, so they won't play. But Jesus ends, though, by saying, wisdom is justified by all her children. You now Jesus is saying that the actions of John and Jesus may differ, but their message is the same and their spiritual children are the same too. Their children are ones who are humble and honor God by their repentance, by crying out for mercy. However, the children of the Pharisees are self-righteous, they're condemnatory, they're proud. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Wisdom is justified by her children. And so the wisdom of John's and Jesus' ministry is shown by the spiritual children who have. Mercy towards others who have humility, who are looking to God for their righteousness and not their own. And so we see once again that John is the revealer of the truth. In this case, the religious leaders reaction to John the Baptist and Jesus revealed their ultimate rejection of God. But Luke here is not just writing to inform. He's not just writing. So, Oh, well, I'm glad you all know this. He's writing so that each one of these, Theophilus and us, would answer these questions. What do you do? Where do you go with your doubts? What is your standard of greatness? And does it match the metrics of Jesus' kingdom? Are you demanding that God plays by your religious rules? Or are you submitting to his? These are not abstract questions. They're questions we face every day. Anne Steele dealt with these same questions and challenges. She was born in Broughton, New Hampshire in 1717. And her father was a timber merchant and a pastor. And yet she had a very trying life. When she was three years old, her mother died. At age 14, she started having symptoms of <coughs> chronic malaria that would affect her on and off for all of her life, making her very weak and frail. At age 19, she had a riding accident and injured her hip that made her very immobile for the rest of her life. When she was 21, life started to take a turn for the better. She was courting a man, and they were going to get married. And then he died in a tragic accident. Though she later received several offers for marriage, she decided that she would stay single So she could devote her life to writing and helping her father. You know, her trials and tribulations, they didn't cause her to never have doubts. But they caused her when she had doubts to come to Jesus. I don't know if we could put the words up for the last song. Because we're going to end with singing one of her songs. It's Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. In the first verse. Just think of all that she went through. And she says, Dear refuge of my weary soul, On thee when sorrows rise, On thee when waves of trouble roll, My fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, For thou alone canst kill. Thy word can bring a sweet relief For every pain I feel. In the next verse, I'm not going to go through all of it, But she she talks about gloomy doubts prevailing. And maybe that was you this week, Or that's you in the past. What will I do? And yet she goes on and she'll talk about how she comes to God. And if we could go to the very last verse, because there we see one more verse, please. She talks about how the mercy seat is open. You know, she comes and she's saying, look, there's a mercy seat in heaven. For which I can come and my soul can go and hope will come at Jesus' feet. Because Anne had something greater than John the Baptist. Anne is in the kingdom as you can be by faith. And she could look and go, not only is one going to come, but one has come. And he died in my place. And he rose again, not only as my priest, but as my sacrifice. And so when my doubts arise, I can look at his hands. I can look at his feet. And I can see his love, even though I maybe don't understand what all is going on. And I can run to his mercy seat that I might find faith and hope for the moment. And so let's pray and then let's sing of our great God who gives us mercy and hope and faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask where we are prone to wonder, to doubt, would you strengthen our faith? Lord, we would even ask if there are those who do not have their first faith, that you would allow that to happen, that they may Trust you and see the greatness of your Son, the greatness of his kingdom, and who we are when we are in you. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.